Welcome to Go Behind the Ballot, a podcast where two Texas moms go on an educational quest to demystify Texas politics. Join me, Nicole Abshire, and my co-host, Claire Campos O'Neill, as we deep dive into the most burning issues, hear stories from candidates, and offer hope in these challenging political times. Let's saddle up and go behind the ballot. Hi, everyone. Thank you so much for joining us today for this episode of Go Behind the Ballot. In this show, we interview Claire Barnett and Stephanie Phillips, and they created this incredible organization called Blue Horizon. The whole mission of their organization is to help support candidates who are running in very red rural areas, Democratic candidates. As we learned from our Chris Tackett episode, in a lot of these very, very red areas, you don't have a Democratic challenger in the race, and they are helping to get more people on the ballot. Now, we, as a reminder, are trying to be a nonpartisan podcast, but we thought they would be great to have on this show because we need to have more people on the ballot. We need to have more options when we're voting so that we have a better opportunity to select someone who reflects us and our values. And when it's only one party, that is collectively not great for Texas. So we wanted to invite them to share a little bit about who they are and their organization and their mission and how they are helping encourage more people to run and and also just thinking differently about winning and how when you're a candidate, you have to think a lot about what are the goals you want to achieve if it's very unlikely that you're going to win. So it was really fun hearing about their experience and the things they learned along the way when because they also themselves ran for office. So Nicole, what did you think of this conversation? It was an important one, right? It's so great to get a different perspective. It's so... I think easy and tempting, maybe because the most attention goes to big races and urban areas. And so it's so important to hear from folks who are in more rural, ha, I did it, rural areas (laughs) and hear about their experiences and also demystify, right? What I personally would have imagined that experience would be like, which I thought it would be contentious and ugly and difficult and um, demoralizing. But it turns out that that's actually not the case at all. And that there is a lot of hope in those areas and a lot of ground, I think, for changing the conversation and opening up the conversation. So super great to hear from a completely different point of view. And so important when we look at the big landscape of politics in Texas, and frankly, nationally too, but um, obviously our focus is Texas. Agree. Yeah, they just did a so such a great job addressing the challenges that some of these candidates come up against, but still being bold and putting your name on the ballot and running and how folks in these areas really appreciate having a candidate come out and talk to them and have that dialogue and how important that is at the end of the day is that we have candidates and elected leaders who are accountable to the public and who are authentic and who really are firm in their values, but have open ears and are willing to hear from everyone who they could potentially be representing. So this is a fun one, very informative. Hope you enjoy the show. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to this episode of Go Behind the Ballot. We're really excited to have Claire Bennett, come sorry, Barnett. Claire Barnett, <laughs> <laughs> and Stephanie Phillips with us today. They are the founders of Blue Horizon, and we thought they would be incredible guests to talk with so we can get to learn a little bit more about getting more people to run for office. 
So hello, ladies. Thank you for joining us. Hello. Thanks for having us. Yeah, we're so excited to get to know more about your organization and your experiences running for office. But we always like to start from the beginning and learn a little bit about who you are, where you're from, and what you were like as a child. So can y'all tell us, are you from Texas? And what kind of things brought you joy when you were younger? Yeah, I'm, I pretty much grew up in Texas in the Austin area. And then I've lived out in the hill country here in a very rural area for uh, about 20 years. Joy as a child, um, reading, I just was a total bookworm and music. I played the piano and other instruments. And so, yeah. Do you still play? Yeah. That's great. I took piano lessons, but I was terrible at practicing and I can play like Stephanie a chord. might be underselling. Does she play? <laughs> <laughs> oh, okay, Claire, give us the scoop then. Tell us what Stephanie really does. She's a professional musician. Ooh, very <laughs> so nice. Humble. Yeah. <laughs> That's great. How about you, Claire? Um, yeah, I was I was born in Houston. Mostly, we grew, moved around a lot when I was growing up, but I most of my like core formative childhood was in Fort Worth, uh, and. So yeah, Texas roots, although we lived all over the place. And yeah, joy growing up, again, reading also. I also was a yeah total bookworm. And I have a daughter who has followed in my footsteps who will only read um, to her younger sister's great frustration. And uh, family, I've, I've always been a family-oriented person. So. Yeah, that's great. So I'm curious, we always like to know, because obviously you are in the political realm. Was this something that you grew up with in your family? Like, did you have conversations around the dinner table about politics? Or was that something that y'all didn't really dive into? What was that memory like for y'all? We definitely talked about politics. My dad, actually, as I was while I was growing up, was a libertarian. Um, he was disaffected from both major parties. And he actually ran for state house as a libertarian in 1992. Yeah, we talked about politics, but you know, in a, other than that one, his one um, quixotic run for office, where I remember we had like a pancake breakfast at one point during his campaign. That was my only real close encounter with politics until post 2016. Interesting. I know that sounds really intense actually. And actually, Claire, I'm going to ask you this because I would imagine many people listening aren't very familiar with what the Liber Libertarian Party stands for. Could you give us a little like cheat sheet? Yeah, this was, what, 30 years ago. So Libertarian Party now might be a little bit different. I certainly know what my dad thought the Libertarian Party stood for when he, you know, and that kind of idea of personal freedom. And that if you, if the government weren't involved in our lives, then it would allow everybody to be more compassionate towards our neighbors. But my dad's like that one of the most giving people I know. And so that was part of what I grew up thinking of as libertarianism. And it's not something that I now understand to be the driving ethos. <laughs> but so that was that was the, the libertarianism of my childhood. So I, I did not once I kind of emerged from that and learned more about what other libertarians were saying. I, I, I moved in a different direction. And then ultimately, I think my dad's voted in every Democratic primary for the past few years, uh, which he never would have done before. 
Interesting. Well, that's so cool that you had a firsthand example of someone running for office. I always wonder when we talk to our guests, did they see that from their parents or other family members or were they just like, I'm going to try this all on my own and see what happens. Well, it still felt like that, but (laughs) yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Great. How about you, Stephanie? My folks, my dad in particular, were um, activists in the 60s and 70s. And so not necessarily running for office, though there definitely were organizers for Jesse Jackson, Rainbow Coalition in the 70s, and um, lots of protests and organizing and that kind of stuff. So do you remember going to protest with them when you were younger? Was that like part of the weekend activities? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. My mom said once that, so I was born in Lincoln, Nebraska, and dad was the uh, campus minister. And apparently one of them worked in the morning and one of them worked in the afternoon. And um, there was a daily anti-war protest at that point. And mom said she would bring me in the bassinet and go to the protest. And then dad would take me home. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Wow. So really in your blood. Yeah, that's so interesting. Um, And uh, Claire, I'm curious, what was your experience like running as a Democrat with your dad? Was he involved with your run? Was he really excited to like, I don't know, pull out his old material and be like, let's do this. Like, was was there a lot of involvement from your family when when it was your turn to put your name on the ballot? Well, he was definitely a proud dad. And he did pull out, he found his cards, his like business card size card from when he ran. And he, so at the first fundraiser that my sister hosted for me, um, it was like a campaign kickoff fundraiser. My parents at that point lived in Austin and they drove down um, and, you know, proud dad there. And he pulled out the cards at the at the fundraiser. So, and that was, you know, that was early in his starting to vote for Democrats. So we, uh, but from a, he was just a proud dad. Like, and, and he, he would go, he, he went block walking with, for me, with me at times. And, um, so, uh, yeah, they, they weren't, they, they weren't local at that point, but, uh, he'd come down on the weekend and go Yeah, that's cool. Sharing that experience and, uh, <laughs> I'm sure being able to talk about what it, what it felt like. <laughs> and Stephanie, I bet your parents too were probably like, all right, we like, we got someone running. My dad was incredibly proud I didn't realize he actually passed away last summer. And when I was going through sort of going through the closet and stuff like that, I was I found where all my extra large tall T-shirts from the campaign had ended up. I didn't realize that he kept getting more Uh T-shirts. because I was like, wow, dad has five (laughs) T-shirts. Yeah. One for every day. Oh, yeah. yeah. And there was more than once when he was in the hospital, the doc- a doctor would come in and dad would go, this is my daughter. She ran for House District 73. <laughs> wow. Uh, I love that. So, yeah, he was, he was super proud. Yeah. Well, that's great. I'm sure it was very meaningful to have that parental support because when you run, it's not easy. I mean, y'all know personally, and I'm sure you definitely know this now that you're connecting with people who are running and it's so great you have that experience to be like, we were there, we know what you're going through. Before deciding to run for y'all's particular races, what was your involvement like within your communities? Were you already, was there something in your community that you were really activated by like public education or 
infrastructure or healthcare? Was there like a particular issue that you felt really called to make a difference in? So in this particular area, in the environment um, and in uh, education, I work with a nonprofit in uh, Title I schools in Austin. And so I really could see the um, education disparities and the ways that we could uh, better support uh, our students, particularly in communities of color. And um, so that was certainly one thing coming in from the education standpoint that I could see that there could be a huge, a huge change was needed. I was in the past had still been more organized, more involved on more of the activist, the protest or activist side than the, you know, let's try to take the wheel and do something about it side, which is running for office, you know, and my partner was my campaign manager. And there were several times when I would be about to post something on social media or something. And she'd go, you have to decide, are you a candidate or are you a protester? Are you a rabble rouser or are you trying to have us? And it really made me see those difference. Like, are we trying to tear something down or are we trying to say what we can do to make it better? And it's a really different mindset to start thinking about. And I think it sort of segued us into this, um, this organization that Claire and I built because we really had to put our minds towards how could you lead and make this better? But it was definitely a, a transition for me in terms of getting to know this particular area because I had been involved, um, hadn't been involved with politics locally. Could we just take a, a step back and can you tell us, you both ran for state representative, where the district that you ran in and a little bit about that district and, and what that the demographics are like of that area is like urban, suburban, rural, just so we can help visualize where in Texas we're talking about. Yeah, sure. So mine was um, State House, District 73, which is, at that point, it's been redrawn since then. At that point, it was Comal, Kendall, and Gillespie counties. It's largely rural, um, but it does have a fast-growing, one of the fastest-growing cities in the United States is New Braunfels. Mostly is in the district. And then it's a real mix between retirement, um, it's rural ranches and some lakes and the real beautiful nature and state parks and stuff out here. So there's a definitely a retirement community, which is um, older and largely white and upper, you know, um, I know uh, Fredericksburg is in the district and it's become an incredibly expensive. Um, But there's also, especially the younger residents, especially in the schools, the the public schools are 50% Hispanic, a lot of the, through the district. So there's a huge change coming. Yeah. So what, what are kind of the driving issues for the community that you were connecting to? Cause that, I mean, I'm like, I'm just trying to wrap my mind around the different pieces of that puzzle. It was pretty segmented. Our, our, the big opportunity for pickups here, I think is organizing in particularly the more urban, but also the rural Hispanic communities, immigrant communities in the district, there's a lot of people who don't participate and don't vote or don't feel safe to participate. And of the um, my precinct, which is out north of the lake, it's largely white. Um, our turnout here was like 75%. And they vote almost 80% Republican. Whereas the parts of the district that are more diverse would likely have a much higher Democratic turnout, except they don't turn out as well. So that's 
um, I think something we see across the state of Texas. And haven't had local candidates for the most part to turn out for, right? No, there's no local candidates in the county right now. Right. We'll definitely get into that. Um, So Claire, can you tell us a little bit about your community involvement prior to running and then a little bit about the district that you did end up running in? Sure. Uh, So I, my real, I, I don't, I guess I would say there wasn't a particular issue that motivated my involvement. My involvement in politics began after 2016 um, that election, that presidential election, um, I think galvanized a lot of people. Um, so certainly there are issues that I cared about, but nothing I had been, I had never been an activist in any sphere before. So my community involvement was like, you know, I ran a breast, bre- breastfeeding support group um, for many years um, in the community. So maternal health uh, was certainly of interest to me um, in my first campaign was something that I kind of organized around. And then with young kids, you know, education was something that um, I was able to talk to. My, my professional background is in um, adult education, but uh, uh, curriculum design. So I was able to pull on that. Uh, uh, but really my active involvement in, in politics and community organizing really be- began after, after that election. And, you know, I started, like got engaged kind of through indivisible and then I found a um, city council campaign to, to volunteer for and uh, and then you know, kind of leading up to the decision to run was like all right uh, looking at across the country what was happening in Virginia in 2017 it was like I, oh, the state legislatures that's where that's where the action needs to is and needs to be and so that's really where my my focus started to narrow in on and I was looking for a candidate to support. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So. And you looked around and you were like, me. <laughs> well, I didn't say me. I was asking. <laughs> it's like, is anyone running? Have you heard if anyone might be running? And I started, I was asking enough, <laughs> enough places. People started asking back, well, how about you? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I was like, oh. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That's incredible. Uh, <laughs> sometimes you just got to go for it. <laughs> Something that I think about a lot, and I'm sure y'all do as well, having run and, and y'all, you know, ran for office, how, you know, I, in the moment, I, the goal is to win and become the state representative. But I think what I would love to see is a reframing of that idea of winning and how winning can be so much more. Like y'all have started this incredible organization, and I'm sure this would have never happened had you not run and then met each other. Like for myself, I ran and I was, you have to be very brave. And I was like, well, let's do this podcast now, Nicole. I already did one brave thing. What's another? So can you tell us about some of the experiences you had, some of those like winning opportunities you saw because you ran for office? I mean, I think through running for office and I I, I think Stephanie and I, like a lot of candidates running in the types of races where where, we're, we're working to support, not all the candidates, but most of them go in. And we certainly went in with our eyes open that an election night win was very unlikely, unlikely to you know, near impossible, right? And that's not why we did it. We recognized why it was so important to in you know in my um, you know, I live on the north end of San Antonio. It's largely suburban to some exurban areas, but you know, uh, and, and rapidly grow, you know changing demographics but had been you know, long time Republican stronghold that is shifting, but it's still you know, 
uh, and the, so there was a popular Republican incumbent who had run unopposed for this office several times. And so, you know, that, okay, that we can't let this happen, continue to happen. Everybody deserves a choice when they go to vote. And then, but knowing that you're going in and unlikely to win, what are, what are my goals? Um, and so it was important, and that's something we're talking about with our candidates now. What are achievable goals that you can say, I did this and it wouldn't have happened if I hadn't run? And it's important, it's personally important to me and it's also important for my community. And so for me, uh, especially my first campaign, it was speaking out on certain issues. That was like the height of the, you know, the refugee asylum migrant crisis where uh, families were being separated, kids taken away from their parents at the border. So, you know, I organized a panel discussion with experts from various perspectives on, you know, what is this doing to families and what role does the state have to play in this? You know, we're, I wanted to make clear, like, this is a federal issue and federal policy that's being implemented, but the state does have a role. And what is that? Um, so, um, and then you know, uh, it was in the wake of the Parkland shooting and then the Santa Fe shooting here in Texas, we organized a, a press um, conference on the, the steps of the, the Texas Capitol to, you know, organized um, a couple, a few dozen um, candidates for office um, to, to sign on to a statement, a joint statement and call for a special session of the legislature. So to be able to speak out on issues that my incumbent was never going to say anything about, even though you know, he was perceived as a moderate and, you know, he might have disagreed with the, he, he was never going to say anything, right? So to be able to push those kinds of conversations was important to me. Yeah, that makes me think a lot about our conversation that we had with Chris Tackett and how his whole mission is to help understand money coming into political races and how there's a lot of dark money. And the people who are pushing a lot of these candidates are very, very, very far right. But it doesn't matter even if their candidates don't win, they move the conversation where they want it to go. And we appreciate that y'all are saying, you know, we deserve choices and more folks in the race because that helps democracy and that helps people feel more invested in participating. Um, uh, well, and if you know what, I want Stephanie to tell her, her yeah, yeah, no, story of pushing that conversation because she had the, uh, we've, there, there are actual metrics on her. Like, it's amazing. I just, um, so Stephanie, talk about your, yes. your environmental policy and <laughs> Yeah, please tell us. And then also some of the goals, yeah, that you had and what you were able to achieve by running. Well, definitely. Coming into it, I um, it, it was similar to Claire, like somebody needs to run. So in the last 20 years, one other person ran in this race. So that's 10 cycles, you know, every two years, only one other person ran. And um, um, he had passed away, so I couldn't even talk to him about it. That was, you know, 10 years prior. And there were so many issues with the incumbent. He ran completely unchallenged and he was elected with no Democratic challenger in 2016. There was a lot of scandal that he got passed and things like pictures dressed up like a Nazi and organizing anti-Muslim rallies in Fredericksburg because, you know, that's needed, right? <laughs> you know, it was just, and I just was like, somebody has, there has to be a choice. Mm -hmm. He can't just be elect, just elected with no challenger at all. And um, so I really originally signed up 
because the someone's got to do it. I guess it has to be me platform and um, got more and more into the issues of the district and really um, came to realize how important the Comal Springs here are the largest network of springs in the Southwest United States. It's the health of the, um, the, the way development goes, the, the, rock quarry aggregate industry that's trying to eat up the hill country, all of these things completely impact the economic and the health and the beauty and the natural integrity of the area. And so I really crafted a message around um, both a conservationist and in terms of the face of the development, but also around um, the business needs, the economic needs of not destroying area. The, um, Incumbent was an Empower Texas recruited candidate. He was expected to be pro oil, pro extraction, just a you know an automatic blanket vote on all of these things. Well, by the time we got to um, my second race, his so I ran the same person against the same person twice. So I got to the second one. His talking points, which were pretty much you know heartbeat bill, secede from the union. Etc. Just the, the about the most right wing Tea Party things. Then at the end, he would go and preserve our hill country environment, and then basically use sentences from my website that were why we had to improve the you know it, to to care for our. He's like, I know I sound like an environmentalist here, but and, you know, like good old boy thing of and um, the scorecard for environmental votes. And in the 20, his first term, they, he was rated a 17 out of a hundred. Um, by the next, by, you know, by the next cycle, he, his second term after I ran against him on an environmental platform was a 67. So he ended up with a lifetime score of 47, which was one of the more, environmental, pro-environmental Republicans in the state legislature. And you can really see how we have so much talk about messaging. You know, the Democrats need the right message. We have the wrong message. Well, if you don't have a candidate, you know, if you don't have a Democratic candidate, then the, the messenger is the Republican Party. The messenger about what the Democrats believe is Fox News and the Republicans. So there's no message if there's no messenger. And I think that is an incredible role that we can play in these races, even though I would have been thrilled to break 30%. You know, I knew I was, you know, not naive at all about the potential, but I think it was incredible, incredibly important to get people talking about these things and to know that um, when there is a when there's a campaign with it's challenged, the League of Women Voters, the newspaper, the, you know, the Rotary will have events that have both sides. And if we don't have people, those events don't happen. Mm. Or they happen and it's all Republican voices. Right. <laughs> Yeah, that's a great point. And and I'm sure for some of these folks, they just feel very alone in these communities where they don't have someone that ref- that, that they can somewhat identify with. And that I'm sure leads to more cynicism and opting out because what, if you have no choice, why pay attention? 
Well, it's something we hear in the suburbs all the time here. Like, I would be knocking on doors and people, you're a Democrat? There are no Democrats in this neighborhood. Mm. <laughs> I'm the only one. I'm like, well, let me tell you, I'm knocking on, you know, 40% of the doors on your block. And it's like, this page tells me differently that there are, like, those houses, those are all Democrats. <laughs> and, but there's a, so like, in some places, there's a real physical fear. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, but they, and there's certainly a social fear of outing yourself as a Democrat in this you know, perceived highly conservative area. Um, and to be able to tell you're, you're not alone. Yeah. Do you feel lonely and isolated and, and then are afraid to, to talk to their neighbors about what they really believe? Uh, yeah, that's just so damaging all around. The freezing effect of that is really incredible to think about. Yeah, that isolation. And so then there's there's no talking across these barriers. And so, yeah, nobody can even perceive what's true in terms of what the numbers are because everybody's so scared. Wow. Right. And that's, I think that's a reason why there's a, um, a sort of a status quo belief that the way we move the needle in conservative areas is to have a conservative candidate. Because the target is the perceived target is those middle of the road people who might be willing to peel off for a Democrat. And I would say maybe if it's a place that could actually flip, but if not, if it's a race like Claire and I did that we know what's going to happen, it's better to have a candidate who's going to organize and excite and help people sort of come out who are solidly democratic or solidly progressive. And then you're finding those, you're building that social community where people find each other and they gain strength from that. But when everyone is isolated and you knock on a door and they're like, you're a Democrat and they start to cry because we've had people cry or I've been to, um, especially out this, you know, it's ranches and gated communities and stuff. So sometimes I'd call ahead. I know a strong Democrat and I'd call ahead of him and be, can I stop by? And then you end up, they, they call up to the main house and the whole family's up there and suddenly there's 15 people who want a fo- photo because you're the first Democrat who's ever, you know, shown up. And I think that that causes people to then get engaged. It's like a catalyst. And so I think that's the first step rather than the first step being, you know, go out there with my cowboy hat and talk about how I'm a veteran, but kind of a Democrat. And, and that's what we're used to. Right. Well, and I'm sure, too, just the type of candidates y'all are, and I'm sure the ones that you work with, they, this seem to be from a different mold than the incumbent you ran against, Stephanie, who you said was recruited by Empower Texas. Texas or Texan? I forget. Empowered Texas. Yeah. Texas. Yes. Which is the pack that we talked about earlier in our Chris Tackett episode that's funded primarily by Tim Dunn and Ferris Wilkes, this, these billionaires in West Texas. But that person was, it sounds like sort of handpicked, whereas y'all decided, hey, I'm part of my community. I want to see community involvement and those voices to be heard. So just the candidates themselves are coming from a different place than some of these other folks who are in power or hands elected to be in power potentially down the road um that's interesting well let's and, talk I mean, about- and that happens on the democratic side too they're handpicked oh, yes right right it, so that's not unique but the yeah that experience that's not happening in areas where democrats don't think they can win 
I want my brain <laughs> to really take <laughs> that in because this feels like a big like highlight moment of this conversation. Because I feel like what you're speaking to is campaigning on what you believe in and for your community in a really unapologetic way, right? Not this tentative, well, um, I'm here I am on the other side and I'm just kind of a little blue, but uh, you know, you can welcome me in people, but being much more bold and truthful about what it is that you stand for and kind of offering this this almost almost a safe place. I know it might not seem safe at times, but almost like a safe place for people to see that you can be fully whatever you identify with in that community. Like there's just something so powerful about that. I think it just, it's like, I don't want this to be a little, like a little moment in this conversation. I want it to be a a really big one because it does feel like it's flying in the face of what we would believe or what we've been maybe trained to believe about how to make change that has to be teeny and it has to be incremental and you can't don't, don't push people too hard or too fast. And, um, so that's all. I think I just want to really like put an exclamation point in this moment and these testimonials that, that you've both given. Right now we're saturated with media. We're saturated with deceptive media, manipulative media and authenticity goes a long way authenticity and truth really cut through. And what I've found is you can make connections with people who think very differently than you if you make a human connection. And I found certainly in one of my counties, the county that was the home base of the incumbent, where a lot of people were not knew him well, were not happy with him. And in that county, I received more Democratic votes than any Democrat ever. So in both 18 and 20, the the record for Democratic votes goes to my campaign. Now, some of that is massively because the incumbent was a terrible person and people knew him and their kids went to school with his kids and, and all of that stuff. But to go into that space, even though it was, I mean, my district sent six busloads to the January 6th um, event. It's very much. Including the incumbent. (laughs) Including the incumbent, who there's photographs of him on the the Capitol steps. And, you know, they had, they have big, they don't just have a Republican float in the 4th of July. They have a Tea Party float in the Mm -hmm. 4th of July parade, you know. And to be able to go into there, that area and be like, yeah, I believe these things. And I think that it's really upsetting that the pipeline, the, you know, the pipeline development has seized a corner of your ranch and tore it all up. And that I would try to do something about that. And we should talk about, you know, this and this. And it, it made a real connection with people. And a lot of people were like, well, okay. And, and I think the only way you can do that is the actual, you know, meeting people going into Republican spaces. And it's scary. It's scary to be around people who really think differently than you. And, but, you know, once you break through that, it can get kind of fun because people in general, I think are, most people are really not that well-informed and 
if you if you are kind and um, try to you know communicate and make a connection, people pretty much I noticed. I would think it was a completely Republican space. And then I would, and they go, oh, well, you know, they'd back off. I, I'm actually more of an independent, you know, and um, I really don't, not that political. And they, they would backtrack so quickly. But I think we're so afraid of conflict that we don't want to have those conversations. And um, we really, really, really need to be willing to go into churches and you know, PTAs and all of these different areas and be, don't silence your values because otherwise people don't hear it. Well, and I think you know, back to that, that messaging, because there's this messaging narrative that you know, Democrats need to fix their messaging. And if, and especially in rural areas, Democrats need different messaging. And I think that Stephanie, and I would challenge that, that it's not that you know, if we're looking at like democratic voters in rural areas, it's not that their values on abortion or voting rights or some of these other really key issues that are, are resonating with Democrats across the country are different or you know, they know, in fact, they line up with it. But there are issues and priorities of people who live in rural communities regarding their infrastructure, their environment, their access to health care, their access to schools. And we do need candidates who can articulate that in a way that resonates with those, you know, that they clearly understand the problems and have solutions to address them. So this whole conversation about the problem with democratic messaging for my is is missing the mark. There is a messaging problem. One, we often don't have a messenger. And two, it's not that the values are different, but the priorities on you know how I live my daily life are different. Speaking of the messenger, let's use that point to transition into Blue Horizon, the organization that the two of you founded. Can you tell us a little bit about the genesis of that and what made you decide this is something that we really need to help get more candidates out there? And ultimately, like what, what our show is trying to highlight is the importance for just protecting our democracy and a big component of that is having more people running as y'all are, as we've been saying. So can you tell us a little bit about how uh, Blue Horizon came to be? The very, very, very beginning was a Facebook group that I started with Claire and other candidates in um, 2018 um, when we first filed and realized there was nobody there to help us. And so I just started adding people to a Facebook group that I called Team Blue Texas. And um, we would answer each other's questions about what do you put on a sign and um, where should you get it printed and what do I do to file this campaign finance report? And, and that was amazing because it was all we had because the local, my local party didn't know or their information was inaccurate. And the state party doesn't help candidates who aren't their ones they want to focus on. I, I won't say that. They would like to. They don't have the resources. They don't have the capacity. And so um, we don't get the priority of necessarily having the resources or support. And so we realized there's just nothing there. And so the the problem of the Facebook group is that we were just all guessing. You know, we're, we're filling out the form and someone's like, yeah, the answer to number five is 42. So everyone's like, okay, let's all put 42. You know, it kind of felt like 
like the midnight cram for the exam instead of an actual legal campaign finance filing. Um, so there were multiple things like that that we just kept feeling like the, the this, this free fall, like it, it just kept being more astonishing how little there was. And then for me, after 2018, I was so puzzled, so stunned, shocked, traumatized about the race and what happened and didn't happen and had been fully prepared based on the sort of status quo that we've talked about, about who the candidate should be. I was prepared for the possibility that I would get like 10 points below all the other Democratic candidates. You know, I was just prepared that I could just really have an embarrassing number because I had talked about reproductive justice and all of the, the bathroom bill and all of the hot button things you're not supposed to talk about, I talked about. And I thought, oh, God. Well, then I got more votes than Beto in Gillespie County and ran even with the top other people who had spent millions of dollars. And I thought, OK, I don't understand what happened. So I just started. I called Claire and then I called other. I ended up by the end of the day had called. Well, not one day, but had called um, over 30 different candidates who'd run for state house in rural areas and talked with them about their experience. And it was definitely statewide. And so we saw these systemic problems. And then um, for the next year, next cycle, Claire and I really talked through a lot of what could be done differently. But I don't think at that point we were thinking that we were going to do it more like they, can you advise other people? They should do this. Why don't they do this? You know, so. Yeah. It sounds a lot like it mirrors your story yeah. of deciding to run for office, right? You're like, you're looking around for, okay, who's who's going to do this? It's like, oh, and then Claire, I guess it's me. Yeah. Well, and then you have the gall to actually do something. And <laughs> it's like, well, why are you doing that? Well, because it, it's not being done. Mm-hmm. <laughs> How do y'all encourage people that you see in communities to run who you see some of yourself in? Like, how do you help push people over that edge? Or do you do that so that we have more candidates running and more people thinking about the goals that they could accomplish if they ran, even if winning seems so unreachable? How do we just get more candidates and better candidates to put their name forward? So when we first launched Blue Horizon Texas almost a year ago, we weren't going to focus on recruitment because our experience was we had these candidates that were, just, you know, they would either volunteer or somebody would recruit them and then they'd be pushed off the cliff. And so we were like, okay, there has to be the net to catch them. Um, and it was after the filing deadline last year in December of 21, when we saw just how many races were uncontested, like over half of counties in Texas, have zero Democrats running for county office. Zero. Over half of counties. <laughs> that's not popular. That's not you know half the population because you know, where where population is concentrated. But that we saw. Okay, the kind of recruitment that we think is happening is only happening in certain areas, and so there is a lane for us, like for us there. And so that's, that's what we're, we haven't um, fully engaged on that yet. That's really our goal for 2023. So after November 8th this year, that's when we're going to shift to 
okay, let's um, work on on can you know building a candidate pipeline and finding candidates to run for for these local offices, starting there instead of let's start at the top. Um, and so I think you know some of the things we've been doing already is we we've uh, have been doing uh, former candidate conversations. We've called them webinars with with other candidates who have run. Uh, to to have the you know similar kinds of conversations we're having today and the stories are so inspiring right like and so just hearing somebody else talk about that experience can open a door for somebody else to say oh yeah that is something I can do so that's one thing is just to that you know hearing hearing the stories and I think you I mean you recognize how important storytelling is um, in 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 that so that that'll certainly be something we continue we're also going to be partnering with both national and state groups to work in different areas of the state for different offices. Um, there's some interest in um, county clerk and county commissioner races because of the the um, influence they have over elections administration. So um, I think the other part of that is educating people about what these offices do, because people, especially at the local level, they don't really understand what a justice of the peace does or a county commissioner. And so to be able to, okay, what what is this role? Um, and then, you know, looking at, okay, let's put all the tools in place. Like, let's have things available as soon as somebody starts considering the idea so that they can know what to do. Because all, all of that information is kept behind gates. Either a monetary one, yeah, if you pay me enough money, I'll tell you the answers, or it's a power gate. Like, I want to keep, you know, this information because it's my sphere of influence. So, you know, we keep this closed to anyone who's outside what I perceive as the my sphere. So we want to kind of open those doors and break down the gates to the information. I also, I feel like people could um, read between the lines and figure out really the mission of Blue Horizon Texas, but I'd love it if you guys just like really stated it and as simply and plainly as as you can. You want to take that one, Stephanie, or you want to? Claire's better at simple and plain than I am. <laughs> we'll do both versions. Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, the, the simple is uh, to prepare and, well, I guess now I'll say to recruit, prepare, and support um, Democratic and progressive candidates running in rural, exurban, traditionally Republican areas. Yeah, uh, I just think, and I'm sure y'all think this too, that the more candidates we have, the better off our democracy is because as you're mentioning, you're going to have more people knocking on your door, trying to win your vote and educating the electorate about what they're doing and why they're running. And and to have, to have it at that level, we just don't see it. You don't see a lot of people who are saying, I should try doing this. And Claire, you talked about this a little bit about some of the barriers that are in the way from making people think it's even possible to run. You mentioned, you know, the gatekeepers, whether it's monetary or power. Are there other things that you've noticed that really get in the way of someone imagining themselves as a candidate and as as a as it is an actual possibility for them? Stephanie, why don't you talk about this? I think the talk about are who's running and what why it's different than wait who's running and what well, who, the you know we, we've been t we've talked about like the a new generation of candidates and you know, more diverse candidates and what the the barriers are right so so one of the things that i think we don't 
we, we know, but we don't always realize that in the um, in the traditional, historically successful candidate, usually a upper middle class white man, 50s, 60s professional, right? There's a whole entourage of support that just walks in the room with that person, right? And they usually don't maybe realize it, they depend on it, but they don't realize it, but they're not the one who has to pick up the dry cleaning. There's not the one who has to make coffee. They're not the one who has to make copies. There's not the one, they're not the one who's organizing the volunteers or um, picking up the kids after school. And we're now as a culture, a progressive democratic community of people, we are asking different people to run than that. We're asking moms to run, students, women, teachers, uh, parents, people of color, people more disenfranchised or um, working class people. We're saying we want you to run for office. The challenge is that infrastructure doesn't exist. So we're used to the candidate themselves coming, walking in the door with the ability to have uh, fraternity brothers who'll write them a $20,000 check or these different business partners or whatever. Right. And then they pay Um, someone to go do the thing. And then they pay someone to go do everything. They have wives or, you know, mothers who will, you know, call and say thank you to everybody who made a donation. And that is part of that sort of unconscious privilege. And so when we think about supporting the candidates of today, we have to bring into the picture that they might be like one of our friends who ran out in Waller County, Texas, who's a goat farmer. And it would be great to have a farmer in the Texas legislature, a woman farmer. I would love that. She had to be home every night at a certain time to milk all the goats because you have to milk goats when you're a goat farmer. And uh, Claire had to be available after school to pick up her kids Mm -hmm. and, 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 and. And so we um, have to be able to work the real lives of the candidates into the system that exists for running for office, which is on the evenings and weekends, you're expected to drive all over the place, which means you need a car and gas and insurance, you know, all of these assumptions, things you can't necessarily write off in the campaign. Wear the right clothes. You have to wear the right clothes. You have to um, speak in a certain way. If you're maybe don't have, um, um, depending on your background, you know, and level of certain kinds of education, there's language issues on Facebook and different things where you, you know, can instantly get discounted if you use a word wrong and you don't have somebody to be your communications person. Like there's so many, many things. And, um, and, and the flip side of that is that a lot of times people who maybe come from lower income communities or communities where there's more of an implicit connection to, um, to sharing, community building, different kinds, are, are more capable of having a campaign built on in-kind donations, where you've got a friend who builds your website and another friend who'll loan you clothes and another friend who'll loan you a car. And if we can 
help train people how to utilize their communities and train mm-hmm. volunteers to do and, and ask volunteers to do actual real things like that. Right. Like, and I'll add if we could also space. Yeah, to make the space for someone to say what I really need is to, for someone to pick up my kiddo after school. Yeah. Well, and to train our communities to do that too. Like if more people ran, they would be used to, oh yeah, I have to help so-and-so because they're running and this other neighbor is going to run this time. I think that would really make a difference because um, I noticed a lot of our elected officials are attorneys and attorneys seem to get the game of you write a check. Like this is what you do. Someone asks for money. Here's a check. No big deal because they're, they've trained their communities. <laughs> which would be great if we could do that. Well, the other thing that we're talking about here, right, is changing who runs for office and then hopefully who holds office so that hopefully we can also change the system that they are actually taking part in so that it can be more responsive and, you know, just able to kind of withstand new voices with new priorities And so that's a really interesting kind of tension that we're talking about. And I'm just so grateful that you are on the front line, really trying to to make that happen. You know, we've talked, we talked to a couple of candidates, but most recently, James Tallarico about the pay, right, that a state representative makes. And so, of course, then who's eligible to hold that office? And so I'm just, I'm so glad we're having these conversations about how, how to change the way this can look because again, I'm going to do that thing, Claire, where we talk about the, um, the nonpartisan nature of what it is that we're talking about. This is the true building of democracy, uh, a government that is representative of the people. And it just so happens that in Texas where that growth needs to happen is on the blue side. Right. Um, and so no matter what you, what your political affiliation is, this is healthy, for all of us, um, if we want to maintain democracy. And having a better balance, because we don't have that currently, unfortunately. Um, So we're going to wrap up a little bit here. Uh, What do you think voters really want from their elected officials? I mean, ultimately, people want elected officials to solve problems. And that's largely not and can we say real problems real problems right (laughs) as opposed to manufacturing problems that and and i think that's universal right that there there are real problems that everyone agrees on need to be addressed and solved now there are all sorts of different ideas about how to do that and then there are the yeah the manufactured problems or the let's create a solution for something that's not a problem or let's create a problem by implementing something that, yeah. So there, but I think, you know, we're seeing a lot of anger and in some ways we're this year in other, where other states have had elections, we've seen some shifts in how people are voting remains to be seen, like how widespread that is, but you know, people there, there are lots of Republicans who are really angry about Roe v. Wade going away. There are lots of Republicans who are very angry about school shootings. And that, you know, and so when we saw something like in Kansas, when the voters of Kansas rejected a change to their state constitution, which protects abortion, we can see what voters do and don't want 
Now that's different than showing up and voting for a Democrat. Will that, you know, when you, you know, but when it comes down to what are the, you know, and we see this with um, states where they put the put a question directly to, you know, on a ballot initiative of let's do a um, an independent redistricting commission to do redistricting versus doing the, pro- that is hugely popular with voters, right? Republicans and Democrats support that. And so when that those questions are put to the voters, there's less disagreement than everybody thinks. But we have these like cultural divides that lead people to continue to vote for one party or another. But when it comes to like, everybody wants their problem solved. <laughs> yeah. I'm sure everyone wants like clean air and clean water and a grid that works and good schools. And yeah, the list goes on and on. But like you're saying, we get sort of flumped into certain parties and it would be nice if we could return to these things that really do impact our everyday lives and matter to many of us and find that common ground again and get rid of some of that fear. Because it sounds like y'all encountered a lot of people who were fearful and that definitely doesn't help us feel like we're in this together. You know, it's it's the separation works to some people's advantage, but collectively it is so damaging. Well, and we're we're hearing so much this idea, this this sort of fear threat that's that's going reverberating right now that we're we could lose our democracy. We could lose our democracy. We could lose our democracy. I think at the same time we're at this sort of pivot point where we could gain a real democracy for the first time. I mean, we have not had, rarely on the planet, have we had, you know, if ever for a brief time, have we had a representative government that was, power was divided between men and women. We haven't had representative of of LGBTQ and non-binary people, et cetera. Uh, We haven't had, representative, you know, representation of uh, diverse ethnicities and um, religious beliefs that has that ever worked anywhere, right, for very long. And we're in a lot of ways, that's the challenge that we're facing. It's the cusp of can we bring the full body of the American experiment together and make decisions? And we see blips of that coming through with some of the leaders that are getting elected. And I think that's what people are excited about is they sort of have a taste for that possibility. And I think if we could put our focus on that, that's the direction we're going. And that's part of why the fascism is coming down on us of like, let's not really have elections anymore. Mm-hmm. You know, it's because we're on the cusp of something incredibly exciting. Mm, the backlash that always comes with progress. True. Yeah. But I love that hope, that hope <laughs> reminding us to <laughs> reframe yes. it. Yeah. Well, we have a big election coming up November 8th. What What do you recommend folks do to help inform themselves and pick the right candidate for them when they're unsure, when they're like, I don't really identify with a party. I'm part of the exhausted majority, which I know a lot of folks identify in. If they're ready to go vote, how can they find the right person for them? Assuming that they actually have, you know, people to choose from. Well, I think that I want to maybe back up. I think access to information is actually one of the problems, not even just like who the right person is, but where do I vote? Who's on the ballot? Like, I, I, I think um, there, 
especially in urban areas, we kind of take for granted that that it's ubiquitous, it's everywhere. Mm-hmm. But if you're, except if you're working 24 hour shifts, that right, like okay, it, and transportation is an issue, and but then you put that in a rural county, and you have to drive 45 minutes to get to your polling place. Like so, the and you don't even know where that is or what the hours are, and there's not a place to go find that information. So I think that's the first thing. Like we, uh, as a uh, ecosystem, we need to find ways to make that information ubiquitous and more available. And it seems like it should be because we have the internet, but not every website is updated and. Yeah. <laughs> True. And um, like some places don't have Wi-Fi access, like as you're mentioning. Rural broadband yeah. internet is a thing. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, I mean, that I think that's kind of the first thing I see. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that's a good point. I know. I think a lot of us do get stuck in the, the assumptions that my experience is your experience, but of course it isn't. We live in different areas and we have access to different things. So I'm glad that you reminded us of that, how some people, it is so much harder to vote. And we're going to have a conversation with someone in one of these episodes where they talk about the actual administration of elections, because it is different county by county and who's making these decisions and who's trying to make it easier or harder, because that's another potential barrier for folks. And it's, of course, good to be aware of because there's so much I'm realizing that we assume or imagine. And it's like, we need a basis and some facts so we can uh, be good communicators and good messengers, like y'all are saying about what things are actually like on the ground. And Um, understanding what the, the positions you're voting for, what that sphere of influence is, like, what does that position do can help you as you're trying to figure out, okay, so the JP, the Justice of the Peace in Texas, they oversee all evictions. So when I'm going to vote for the Justice of the Peace, I'm going to listen to this candidate and you know hear what they have to say about how they think about and would treat tenant landlord disputes. Mm-hmm. So and that's another education piece. Like we right. we need to do a better job of letting people know what these why they're important and what. And then we don't need to tell them who's the better candidate. They could, right? Like we need to tell people like, you know, here's what this position does. Here's why it's important. And then they can listen to a candidate and, you know, they can make a judgment on what for that position, this person makes sense or doesn't. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. Giving people credit for, yeah, you know what your values are. And so, you know, who aligns with them and, but you've got to be able to hear from them and understand what the job is before you can make those decisions. Exactly. Nicole, do you have any last thoughts? Questions? Um, well, I have a million thoughts. <laughs> um, to put a bow on it. This. Yeah. Per usual, I will be leaving this just thinking the rest of the day, my mind will be worrying about all of the the uh, implications of the things we've talked about. I'm so grateful for this conversation. Once again, I have a reframing of the way I look at things. And now I feel super fired up for rural. I can never say the word (laughs) rural elections. There we go. So now that's it. That's it for me. Yes, I agree. I'm also really thankful for for this conversation because I'm noticing even in my questions, you know, 
jumping to a certain place and then having to remember, oh, we maybe have to back up and correct this before we go there. And with our podcast, that's what we're doing with a lot of these issues is before we can have conversations about what's good or bad, better or worse, we just have to understand what we're dealing with and sort of get everything out on the table. Um, and it's helpful to wrestle with it and talk to y'all about it because you are so informed and just so great at understanding this and and then putting that into practice by finding great candidates and figuring out how to support them so that at the end of the day, we have a stronger democracy because we have more people participating. So we're thankful for that. Thank you for the work that you do. This is such a needed organization. But you know what we need to say or ask you guys is um, if people want to support, if they also believe in your mission, what is the best way to support you and where can they find you? And we will have this in episode description too, for anybody who's listening. Well, um, so our website is bluehorizontexas.org. And there's lots of information there um, on what we're doing. And there are different ways to help. Um, you know, people who have the financial means um, and want to make a financial donation, those are always welcome. We, we in the world, nonprofit and political world, we rely 100% on donations. Um, so that, of course, is welcome. But we also have a growing volunteer network um, of volunteers all over the state and, in fact, um, over the country who um, want to help in other ways, um, either uh, work on a project for Blue Horizon or directly for a candidate. Um, I connected a volunteer with a campaign just yesterday. Um, a campaign needed a research task done, and I found a volunteer who um, was not local but had lived in the area and said, I, I know how to do that task. Um, and so um, hopefully that that's getting taken care of. Uh, now, uh, and then, you know, for anyone who's you know, hearing this conversation saying, hmm, maybe I could run for office, <laughs> um, we have that, uh, we actually have a, a intake form on our website, a little survey for people who are interested or considering running for office to kind of put them in it. So we would do a follow up um, with them and kind of get them in, um, in our pipeline and get them tools and resources and information to help them along the way. Great. And you can find us on social media at Blue Horizon TX or Blue, at Blue Horizon Texas. Thank you. We will be sure to pass all that along for anyone who's curious and just take that first step. You never know where it could take <laughs> you. Uh, and be brave. That's what we try to do here too. Um, okay, so to wrap up, we'll do our attention mentions where we just mention something that has our attention. So like a TV show, article, a candidate that maybe you're enamored with. Those are great too. Um, so does anyone have anything ready to go? I feel like you you warned us about this earlier. (laughs) (laughs) I have one ready if, if, if you want me to kick it off. Go for it, Nicole. Okay. So, um, I, it's, um, it's a weird party that I'm late to. Um, but I have been listening to Beyonce's album, uh, Lemonade, which of course is not her most recent. Um, and it's really great. It has some real angry moments, some real sad moments. It's a very emotional album. It was in response to, um, some relationship issues she was having with Mr. Jay-Z. So um, I, that has my attention right now. Beyonce's Lemonade. Ooh. Okay, I'll go, to, I'll 
kind of piggyback on yours because I have one that's a little bit late to the party too. But I've been watching, I recently got access to Paramount Plus and they have RuPaul's Drag Race, but I've been watching the All-Star season and it's incredible because they're all winners. So when they're competing, no one, you know, does po- every, they're all like the highest level and they're so fun and it's so great and that show brings me joy i love it <laughs> so get paramount plus <laughs> uh well on a a music theme um uh, a little closer to home uh, my older daughter has been taking music lessons of various kinds and what has my attention recently is when she is singing, doing her voice lessons, and her grandmother takes a video of her very musical theater moves. And um, those are great. I'm that sure sounds that'll like be... a treat. Yeah, <laughs> delightful to look back on. Oh. And recently, the fourth graders recently did a a performance. So, you know, their Texas focused musical performance at the PTA meeting, and she was very expressive. <laughs> yeah. Yay. We love that. How about you, Stephanie? Well, I'm going to be the outlier um, in that I'm not really on media much lately at all, um, except for, for, you know, updating the business in you know, the Facebook page or something. I've been, um, but I have been um, <laughs> focused on I'm learning more about permaculture and, um, um, how, uh, I think climate issues are very present for me in, um, thinking about where we are, what we can actually do. And, um, so, um, I'm, I'm really all about soil rehabilitation right now. Cool. Very cool. Yeah. I don't know much about that, but I know this is. It's yeah. research. Maybe I'll Google. Soil, <laughs> is the, soil is the actual answer to climate change. Oh. Regenerative. So, re, so regenerative agriculture and um, um, land use is kind of like if I'm going to watch a bunch of stuff on my phone or my iPad, it's um, some of the stuff that's going on in like Sudan and other places on um, regenerative agriculture so that we can um not go extinct in the near future yeah well if you have like an article or particular youtube send it our way and we'll put it on the show notes and we'll watch it ourselves because now i'm curious Mm -hmm. because i want to save the planet let's do it (laughs) very much very hopeful Great. Well, thank you. Yeah, we need some hope these days. Well, thanks again for chatting with us, Claire and Stephanie. We appreciate so much all the work that you do. And we're excited for November 8th. It's it's a great opportunity for people to be very involved by voting and, you know, have your voice heard that way. So thank thank you. Thank you so much for having us. Thank you, everybody, for joining me, Nicole Abshire, and my co-host, Claire Campos O'Neill, on Go Behind the Ballot. Hopefully, we've demystified some little portion of Texas politics, and we hope that you'll do more with us. Check out our website at www.gobehindtheballot.com, where you'll find links to all of our social media, and you will find our community. Let's join together and do more. We hope you'll let us know what is working, and we hope you'll join us next week. Thanks, everybody, and have a good one.